Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. I recently finished watching The Sopranos, the entire series. For some reason, I had never seen it, and after a little convincing, I decided to give it a try. It was great, so that was a relief. Somewhere in the later seasons, though, Tony Soprano and his crew get involved in horse racing, specifically owning a racehorse. The plot kind of seemed to come out of nowhere, but without giving it away for those of you who haven't seen the show, there's a point at which Ralphie takes out a $200,000 insurance policy on that racehorse. I won't spoil what happens. That plot line reminded me of something I'd read about a few months prior, about an insurance fraud ring in the late 1980s and early 1990s where horses were turning up dead and people were getting rich. And so it seems like everyone has a true crime podcast these days. I thought I'd give it a try for one episode. And so for my true crime episode, there was really only one obvious choice the disappearance of Brock's candy heiress, Helen Brock, and the subsequent discovery during the investigation of her disappearance of an insurance fraud ring that spanned the length of the country and involved, well, you've probably guessed, horses. You may have heard this story on another true crime podcast, but you've never heard it from the insurance point of view. This is a story about the unintended consequences of tax laws the idea of animals as property, and a bunch of people who do terrible things for money, and what happens when the free market is given free reign, so to speak. Pardon the pun. Helen Brock, born Helen Voorhees, had a remarkable life. Her beginnings didn't indicate the life she was destined to lead. She was born in 1911 into a working-class family in Unionport, Ohio a town so small it wasn't even a town, about an hour west of Pittsburgh. It's still not a town. She intended to stay in Unionport for her entire life. At 17, she married her boyfriend from high school. The marriage was unhappy. He had a tendency to cheat, among other things. And she was divorced at age 21 in 1933. Helen eventually left Unionport after working a series of low-paying jobs and moved to Florida. I can only imagine what being divorced meant in a small community like Unionport, not to mention she probably saw her ex-husband and the woman or women he stepped down on her with all the time. In Florida, she found a job at a country club in Palm Beach where she supported herself as a receptionist. From all accounts, she was quite attractive with a pleasant, if somewhat quiet, demeanor. Some people said she looked a lot like Rita Hayworth, so she was definitely blessed in the attractiveness department. In 1951, she overheard a loud public argument between a husband and wife at the country club. The couple were important members, so not unexpectedly, she did nothing. After the wife had angrily left, the husband, who had a long face and an elegant demeanor, came over to Helen to apologize and to ask her out for a drink. Me? I'd have seen this as a big red flag, but for whatever reason, she decided to have that drink. 
The man in question was Frank Brock. His family owned the E.J. Brock & Sons Candy Company, a leader in candy production in the United States and a major employer back in Chicago, where it was based. Most of us in the U.S. are familiar with Brock candy even today. I'm partial to the butterscotch candies myself. That drink between Frank and Helen led to dates and then to a relationship. You might think that dating a married man would end badly for Helen, but in this case, when he said he was going to leave his wife, he meant it. I mean, he'd had some practice already. This was wife number two that he'd fought with. Frank was divorced several months later, even though it was quite a contentious divorce and Helen was accused in court of being a man-stealer, and they got married soon after. While Frank had a place in Palm Beach, his home was in Chicago, specifically a fairly upscale suburb called Glenview, and Helen came back with him after they married. How she felt about moving into a home that he had shared with recently divorced wife number two and maybe even divorced wife number one? We don't know. It appears that the marriage between Helen and Frank was a good one, though they had no children. He left for the candy factory every day where he worked alongside his brother, and she did the things that a Chicago socialite was supposed to do, and apparently that worked quite well for them both. In the 1960s, Frank's brother passed away, and Frank decided to sell the Brock business. The company was sold to American Home Products for $136 million. Now, they didn't get all of that money themselves, but Helen and Frank, already quite wealthy even before the sale, were set for life. Frank enjoyed his retirement, but only for a few years. He died in 1970, leaving the bulk of his fortune to his widow Helen, who was at that time in her early 60s. She maintained an active social life after his death, She was devoted to animals and had several dogs. She loved buying cars, especially pink ones, and ballroom dancing. And she traveled back to her home in Florida regularly. But she was lonely. In 1973, three years after Frank's death, a friend introduced Helen to a man named Richard Bailey during a night out at a local restaurant. It would be the turning point in her life, and not for the better. Richard Bailey must have had some kind of charisma in person because, frankly, his photos don't indicate that he was any kind of a successful ladies' man. Some of my research on today's podcast came from a book called Hot Blood, which was written by Ken Englade and came out in 1996. In a review for the book, a reviewer named Tom McNamee summed up Bailey in a way I could never improve on. So I'll just read it for you here. Quote, Richard Bailey makes a wonderful villain. You, as the righteous reader, might just want to yank his slicked-back silver hair, grind a heel into his Gucci loafers, and rip the gold chains from his tanned, hairy chest. Most definitely, you will want to pants him. Bailey is a despicable man, probably a murderer. But worse, he is a weenie, smarmy and snickering and full of empty attitude. Americans can be forgiving of murderers, but we hate weenies, unquote. Isn't that great? I might take issue with the assertion that Americans hate weenies, because have you seen our politics these days? Anyway, back to Bailey. By the time Bailey met Helen, he had already established himself as a lifelong con artist specializing in older women, and in Helen he saw an opportunity. While he'd conned endless women during his life, she was the richest trophy that had ever entered his orbit. It was just a matter of convincing Helen that he loved her, getting her to fund his lifestyle, and then 
maybe convince her to make some investments in things that were a much better deal for Bailey than for anyone else. These days for Bailey, it was mainly investments in horses. Bailey knew Zilch about horses in the beginning, but he'd come up to Chicago several years prior, probably to escape prosecution for fraud in Missouri, and discovered one of the best places to pick up Marks, a.k.a. lonely old women, was at local stables, and he developed relationships with some of the more unsavory characters that worked in the horse world. So, after wooing Helen for a little while, he suggested she purchase some horses from someone he knew. Horses, he said, were a great investment and would show a profit for Helen. Helen had no experience with horses, except that Frank had talked positively about some he'd owned before they were married. She paid something like $98,000 for a bunch of so-called racehorses that were worth less than $20,000. Bailey pocketed the difference. I never really understood why Helen, who frankly did not need extra money, would be interested in this, but she was an animal lover and she wanted to make Bailey happy, I suppose. She could have just bought a good hobby riding horse for a couple grand and been done with it, but No, she started giving Bailey money for more horses, and then money to have them boarded and trained at the stables. Uh, You won't be surprised to learn that was also a scam. It was a good con for everyone except Helen. After a while, and I'm sure Richard's endless requests for money didn't hurt, Helen started to get a little suspicious that these expensive horses might not be all they were cracked up to be. But... In February 1977, with her suspicions still mostly unspoken, Helen left Chicago and flew from O'Hare Airport up to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota for some doctor's appointments. She was supposed to return home a few days later, but she never returned home to Glenview, and she was gone. Much of the initial focus of the investigation, as much as there was one, centered around a man who worked at Helen Brock's house and had done so for many years named Jack Matlick, who was also the person who reported her missing almost two weeks after she disappeared. Matlick had been initially hired by Frank, who'd had no idea that Matlick had a criminal record. Matlick's story about the last time he'd seen Helen was a mess, and it changed, and he was squirrely. He admitted to stealing from her in the past, I mean, serious money, about $100,000 in total. Helen's brother, Charles Voorhees, was also a suspect, though he was in Ohio, mainly because when he came to Chicago to help search for her after her disappearance, though I have to mention he didn't exactly rush over, he'd burned all of her journals. He said this was something she'd requested of him years prior, and I get it, I get her desire, but what a missed opportunity for investigators. Richard Bailey was a suspect, not surprisingly, As the investigation continued, and Helen still hadn't turned up, investigators discovered there was some question as to whether Helen had figured out his con with the horses and was tired of being taken for a ride. But since there was no body, it was moot. You couldn't charge someone with murder when no one was sure if someone had actually been murdered. Helen wasn't technically dead. In 1984, after seven years and no sign of Helen, she was legally declared dead. She was worth about $20 million, give or take, which would be something like $70-plus million today. The bulk of her estate was donated to a foundation she had created to prevent cruelty to animals. When I started reading about this case, I didn't know anything about it, but 
it turns out that many of the locations that are referenced in the Hellenbrock disappearance are not far from where I live. So I did do a little driving around to see some things in person, well, the things that are still there, and it, it was interesting to say the least. The Chicago suburbs are expansive these days, but they weren't always that way, and taking a road trip just kind of highlights how much things have changed, particularly around the area that now comprises O'Hare Airport. O'Hare was initially established during World War II, but didn't open for commercial passenger air until the mid-1950s. By the late 1970s, it was enormous already, but it was still surrounded by farms. Most of the Chicago suburbs were farmland, even then. It's kind of hard to imagine. You might be saying, okay, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with insurance? Well, it will. The disappearance of Helen Brock was a mystery that no one seemed to want to take up for years. However, in late 1989, a group of Chicago-based federal agents was looking for their next case. One of the agents suggested they take a look at a guy named Richard Bailey, a local con artist who'd never been successfully prosecuted for fraud despite several complaints received from women. When the agents found out that he'd also been involved with Helen Brock, well, they were intrigued. Since Helen Brock's body had never been found, it would be very difficult to connect Bailey to her murder, but they could still get Bailey on several other charges. They began investigating him, and there was a lot to investigate. Through Bailey, they were introduced to the Jane family, J-A-Y-N-E, some of whom were involved in the Chicago Mafia, also called the Outfit and who owned a string of horse stables around O'Hare and in the Chicago suburbs. Not all of the Janes were bad guys, and some of the Jane family is still involved in horses today and is perfectly law-abiding. But Silas Jane was the kind of bad guy they write horror movies about. Rape conviction at 17, hired someone to successfully murder one of his brothers, you know, the usual. Just put his name into Amazon.com and you'll see how many books have been written about this man. The investigation into the Jane family then led agents to a possible lead in the unsolved murders of three boys in Chicago in 1955 that had terrorized the entire city. I mean, wow. And there was a link back to Helen Brock and a suggestion that maybe Richard Bailey had hired men to kill her, a plot involving the Jane family and their associates to keep her from going to the authorities to complain about his scam. As federal agents continued investigating all these leads, they started to find information about a man in the horse world known as the Sandman. This man was Tommy Burns, and it's here where we start getting into the insurance fraud part of things. The subsequent investigation of Tommy Burns and his eventual cooperation with the government in exchange for a plea deal broke open a very large insurance fraud ring involving show horses, horses used in competition like jumping that spanned a decade and ran up and down the country from New York to Florida. This would result in 36 people eventually being indicted in July 1994 on charges like insurance fraud, mail and wire fraud, obstruction of justice, extortion, racketeering, and animal cruelty. In the end, all but one would be convicted. The center of the fraud was Tommy Burns, the Sandman. At first, I figured he made this name up for himself, but apparently it was news to him when he first heard it. As part of my research on this topic, I discovered that Netflix had an episode about Tommy Burns, which was part of a series called Dirty Money. The episode itself, I think, is not great, but 
It features interviews with Tommy Burns, and you can see for yourself what he was like. So what kind of guy was he? (laughs) My first thought was that this was a guy who thinks he's some sort of a soprano light figure, but he looks like a used car salesman, which is now what he is. He's a relatively big guy with broad shoulders, blocky, with an attitude of entitlement, though he does a good job of trying to cover it up by playing down what he did with a somewhat nonchalant attitude of, wasn't I a bad boy as a young man kind of thing? Burns left his Connecticut working-class home at 15 and met a man named Barney Ward, who owned a horse farm about two hours north of New York City. Barney Ward was a successful rider and professional horse trainer. His son became a four-time Olympic medal winner in an equestrian sport called team jumping. I'm assuming you can imagine what that sport entails, but if not, well, horse jumping involves riding a horse and jumping over very high obstacles. Tommy Burns went to work for Ward as a stable hand, eventually working as a jack-of-all-trades, doing whatever Barney Ward needed. Ward seemed to like Tommy Burns, but wasn't exactly a great boss. Though surprisingly, it seems like Tommy Burns did have some kind of work ethic, which surprised me. He was also the kind of 20-something guy who carried a gun for no reason at all, owned some brass knuckles, and got into fights with little or no provocation. After a few years, it seemed that Tommy Burns wanted more than Barney Ward was going to be able to give him professionally or personally. And also there may have been a little bit of fraud involved in Tommy's part, so he left that job and moved down to Florida. He was hired by a man named John Druck, who also had a horse farm. Druck was primarily a lawyer, specializing in insurance-related work, and he had a teenage daughter, Lisa, who was very into equestrian sports, specifically show jumping. But John Druck also seemed to have an interesting hobby. Like our anti-hero in Double Indemnity, this guy had spent some time thinking about how you could game the system, you know, have an unbeatable, fraudulent claim. I have to insert here that I don't think most insurance people even think about this, but maybe I'm the exception because I have never thought about this. Druck had a plan to electrocute a horse in a way that would mimic a common and often fatal ailment in horses called colic. I'm not going to go into any detail about how this man determined you could electrocute a horse, but believe me, it's awful. Of course, Druck claimed that the horse wouldn't feel a thing, but honestly, I don't think these guys cared about that at all. They just didn't want to get caught. And Druck was sure that this way of murdering horses wouldn't be obvious to most veterinary pathologists. Druck wanted Tommy to take this information and get rid of his daughter's horse, which he had paid a lot of money for and had not been performing well in shows. The horse's name was Henry the Hawk, and Druck had paid something like a quarter of a million dollars for this horse. That's a heck of a lot of money to pay for a horse for your teenager, just saying. I can see why he might have been upset, but of course most normal people would just sell the horse. Sure, maybe it would have been a loss, but maybe a different trainer or a different rider would have had more luck. Well, it turns out that Druck was also having financial troubles. He was going through a divorce, and he had a $150,000 insurance policy on Henry the Hawk. Now, I have no idea if he could have sold the horse for $150,000. Apparently, he told Tommy that he'd had some offers, but none near that number, and that could have been a lie. But as I was reading all of these stories, two things that were never explicitly said but I came away with were, one, that a lot of these people either didn't think of horses as creatures with thoughts and feelings, I mean, basically thinking that they were property, 
that could be disposed of at their convenience, and two, these people also had a tremendous amount of rage towards these animals, as if the animal was doing or not doing whatever just to piss them off. I should also mention that according to Tommy Burns, Tommy was sleeping with Druck's wife. This was not the specific reason for the divorce, and it's not clear if this was true or just boasting, or if Druck thought or knew this about Tommy either. Either way, Druck asked Tommy to kill Henry the Hawk, and Tommy did it, apparently for free. And then both of them went on with their lives, Druck with $150,000 in hand for his horse, Tommy working for Druck and traveling from horse show to horse show to do repairs on saddles and the like. And the insurance company was none the wiser. But that didn't mean that no one knew what Druck and Tommy had done, because the word started to spread that if you wanted to have a horse taken care of, Tommy Burns was someone who could get it done. He began being approached quietly at horse shows by people who wanted his help. It got to the point where people would openly ask about killing their horses in public. I mean, they used personal checks to pay him. This would, of course, be amazing evidence for prosecutors. In all, Tommy Burns admitted eventually to killing 20 horses, all for insurance money. He was paid about $5,000 for each murder, although sometimes the fee was much higher. It will, of course, not surprise you that someone who could nonchalantly kill horses for money might also do other illegal things, so I'll just mention that Tommy didn't just kill horses, he also stole things and was generally an all-around crappy guy, but apparently people kept him around because he would do this one thing that everyone wanted. A couple of the murders are worth highlighting, two in particular. One, George Lindemann Jr. was the kind of guy for whom money was no object. He was the son of a billionaire who made his money in oil and cell phone networks. Lindemann Jr. wanted to be an Olympian, and his horse named Charisma wasn't cutting it. That perhaps it was Lindemann and not Charisma who was the issue was, of course, not to be considered. Lindemann Jr. had a $250,000 insurance policy on Charisma, and he had his trainer approach Burns about murdering his horse in December of 1990. Again, this is where I think it was less about money and more about entitlement and rage, but not about money. Burns murdered Charisma, Lindemann Jr. got more money that he didn't need, and they all went about on their merry, horrible ways. The second murder worth highlighting is the last time Tommy Burns was hired to murder a horse. This event went wrong both for the horse and for Burns. Streetwise was the name of the horse, now, in this case, the owner, Donna Brown, wasn't upset that Streetwise wasn't performing as expected. This was straight-up fraud from the moment she purchased the horse for about $10,000 and then managed to get an insurance policy on Streetwise for $25,000. The problem with Streetwise is that the horse had already had colic in real life. If you remember, the way that Burns murdered horses was supposed to mimic colic, which is often fatal. Colic is such a red flag for insurers that if a horse has had it in the past, they will usually exclude that illness from the policy, which is something that the insurance for Streetwise had done. So the horse couldn't die from electrocution disguised as colic. It had to die some other way. Donna Brown, the owner, wanted Burns to break Streetwise's leg and pass it off as an accident. For some reason, Tommy claims he was too tender-hearted to break a horse's leg, which I highly doubt. Tommy recruited a co-conspirator for this event, 
a man named Harlow Arley. Arley is also featured in the Netflix documentary, and if Burns looks like a guy who sells used cars but used to pretend he was in the mafia, this guy looks like he's at a tough life that has treated him terribly. The two of them picked up Streetwise at a farm in Illinois, loaded him into a travel trailer, and transported the horse to Florida, where they planned to carry out their deed. Why they waited until they reached their destination to try and act out this farce, I do not know. But when the time came, Arlie broke Streetwise's leg with a crowbar. Yes, this is horrible. But Streetwise didn't just fall down in pain. The horse flipped out and ran away. What Burns and Arlie also didn't expect is that a Florida regulatory agency that oversees the horse world had gotten a tip from someone that this was about to go down. And these agents were also watching them try to murder Streetwise and they moved in and arrested the men. Streetwise was eventually caught and unfortunately had to be euthanized, but Tommy Burns' career as a horse murderer was over. Tommy figured it was no big deal. He was in jail, and all his rich horse show buddies would bail him out. But they didn't. And then when federal agents from Chicago came down to talk to him about Helen Brock, they thought he might know something about something, though they thought it was a long shot. He started talking. But he didn't know anything about Helen Brock. What he did know was about an insurance fraud ring he was intimately involved in and the names of all the people who'd asked him to kill their horses for money. While the original idea of the federal agents was to find Helen Brock's body and her murderer, the end result was jail time for a number of people in the horse world. So, okay, you might think, why did this particular crime ring happen? Was it just opportunity and the fact that one person was willing to do the dirty work for money? Was it just par for the course that fraud is just part of a world where you buy and sell animals based on a market that's highly variable? Well, obviously the number of horses Tommy Burns murdered is unusual, as is the fact that he was a murderer for hire for horses. But as the government was investigating, it was pretty obvious that insurance fraud related to horse mortality was not unheard of at all levels of the horse world. One source I looked at said that insurance companies suspected one out of every 20 claims in the early 1990s was fraudulent. So insurers were aware of the problem, though it was often hard to prove. As a matter of fact, it was a particular problem with thoroughbred racing horses, which is a completely different world than show jumping with different players, stables, and trainers. For thoroughbred racing horses, it had gotten so bad in the 1970s that insurance companies had significantly reduced the insurance they were willing to write. One journalist related that at some barns, grooms would show up in the morning and asked, anyone die last night? But first, before we get into the reasons why this happened, I should probably clarify, what are we even talking about when we talk about insurance for horses? Mainly, we are talking about something called equine mortality insurance. This insurance pays in the event of your horse's death from accident, injury, illness, or disease. Keeping in mind that, like with Streetwise, the insurance may exclude something like colic if that horse has suffered from that ailment or injury in the past. If you purchase an equine mortality policy, you can also purchase an endorsement for that policy that provides limited medical insurance coverage as well. And these days, you can also buy coverage for things like theft. Loss of use if your horse is injured permanently and can no longer perform the duties you originally purchased the horse to do, or if your horse injures another person. There's even named peril insurance to cover if your horse dies in a wildfire or a flood. 
The mortality part of the insurance provides a cash benefit to the owner of the horse based on the purchase price of the horse or on something called an agreed value. Those of you in insurance will know what agreed value is, but for those of you who aren't sure what it means, it means that the insurance company and the owner come to some sort of agreement as to what the horse is worth. So, for example, if you buy a horse for $10,000, you could either accept a mortality policy with a value of $10,000, the purchase price of the horse, or you could negotiate with the insurance company for a higher value. Maybe you bought the horse at $10,000, but then invested a year's worth of intensive training for that horse, and you think that because of that training, the horse is now worth $20,000 if you were to sell it today. If you can provide enough justification for this amount and the insurance company was willing to agree to it, you could insure the horse for $20,000. This wasn't as common when Tommy Burns was murdering horses for money, but it's possible this is how the owner of Streetwise was able to insure her horse for more than she paid for it. She may have also forged purchase documents. It wasn't clear from my research how she managed to fool the insurance company. Not everyone who owns horses buys equine mortality insurance, and they still don't. But it is much more popular now than it was in the 1980s and 1990s. It does tend to be more popular for higher-value horses, as you might imagine. These days, the medical care endorsement that you can add to an equine mortality policy can be really useful. Medical care for horses is already expensive, and a lot of problems that couldn't be solved 30 years ago can be treated today at a cost. I mean, there are even MRIs for horses. Insurance companies as diverse as the Hartford, Nationwide, and Lloyd's provide equine insurance. There are a lot of companies to choose from, including some who specialize in doing only horse-related insurance. Rates vary, but the insurance is not so expensive as to be totally unaffordable. There's nothing about the actual insurance that encouraged fraud, so far as I can tell, but there are some requirements that might be problematic. Particularly as respects the fraud investigation involving Tommy Burns, it appears that people were able to pay a handful of greedy, dishonest veterinarians to lie about the health of a horse when a policy was purchased, and that they would also lie about the cause of death as well. You might even be able to find a trainer who would profess that the horse was worth $25,000 and not the $10,000 you had paid for it if you were able to slip the trainer some cash. But that wasn't the reason for this particular fraud ring or the general increase in fraud overall in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Instead, it was more likely related to two things. First, a bubble in the price of horses within the show-jumping world specifically. And secondly, believe it or not, a change in the U.S. tax law. Once again, we have some unintended consequences coming home to roost. To start, it's good to know that as a number of my sources repeatedly said, there is, quote, no Kelly Blue Book for horses, unquote. If you don't know what Kelly Blue Book is, well, it's a valuation system for cars and vehicles in the U.S. So basically, the market for horses was whatever you as the buyer are willing to pay. I mean, there is no shortage of horses in this world, but at the same time, demand does ebb and flow. For example, it certainly appears that the market was high for certain types of horses during the pandemic. More people decided to take up riding as a hobby, apparently. You might be asking, what's a horse cost these days? So I did some general looking. 
if you're in the show jumping world. You can't just use any old horse. You have to use a horse that is built for that sport. You might buy a young horse, but you probably you would want a horse old enough that it's had some training for show jumping, maybe a horse that has competed a couple of times so you know that they would be able to handle the pressure. If you wanted to really compete or try to become an Olympian, well, now you're looking for a certain kind of horse with a certain temperament that's had a lot of training, and you should probably be looking to pay a lot of money. These days, an entry-level show jumper probably runs about $25,000, and the prices can increase from there, up to a couple of million dollars, believe it or not. Olympic-level show jumping horses these days range from $700,000 to up to $15 million in value. Now, imagine the range of values for racehorses, which is a totally different area of equine competition, and you start to get the picture. One racehorse, Fusaichi Pegasus, who'd won the 2000 Kentucky Derby, was sold for $75 million. You can imagine that this probably does lead to some buyer's remorse at times if they feel like they didn't get a good deal. And since horses get sick, get lame, have the same issues that professional athletes have with injuries, overuse, even, frankly, they can have the yips, the value of your horse can go up or can go way down in a very short period of time. It's not even remotely surprising to me that some people believe that the value of an animal should never go down and that they do just about anything to get their money back when it does. That's something that hasn't really changed over time. It does seem like there was a kind of horse bubble, so to speak, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, but that could happen today, too. There's nothing keeping it from happening, and so you can see that as a contributing factor, but not an unusual factor that prompted this wave of murder. There was one very specific thing, though, unique to this time period that definitely contributed to the insurance fraud ring and to other insurance fraud within the horse world outside of the show-jumping arena. This had to do with the passage of the 1986 Tax Reform Act. While I had no idea what this act did when I first heard about it, I now understand that it was perhaps the most important change to U.S. tax law since tax law was even established and perhaps one of the most important things Ronald Reagan ever did. It decreased the number of tax brackets, reduced the highest income tax bracket from 50% to 28%, and raised the tax rate on the lowest earners from 11% to 15%. If your first thought when you heard this was, well, that tracks, with an enormous sigh, I agree with you. The other thing that the Tax Act did was change what could be written off as a depreciable asset. Prior to the 1986 Act, a horse defined as a performance horse, so a horse like a show-jumping horse rather than a horse that just hangs out at your farm and occasionally gets ridden for fun, a performance horse could be written off on your taxes as a depreciable asset. Depreciable assets are, quote, property that provides an economic benefit for more than one reporting period, unquote, a.k.a. more than one tax year. So before 1986, you could write off the value of your horse over time as it became less useful. This meant that you could recoup some of the cost of an expensive show-jumping horse on your taxes. Overpaying for a horse wasn't such an issue then, right? In addition, if you had a really good accountant, well, maybe you could write off all of that $150,000 you just spent on that horse 
that turned out to be freaked out by birds flying over the competition field, and now can't be the animal that takes your kid to the Olympics. But before 1986, it was a depreciable asset. After 1986, not a depreciable asset. No more writing your horse off on your taxes. For some people, let's face it, for some very rich people, this was a major problem. Combine that with a horse valuation bubble that would burst soon afterwards, and you can see what might result. It's also fair to say that all of these people involved were terrible, and that's partly why they murdered all these horses, tax law notwithstanding. If you weren't aware, in the world of law and also in the world of insurance, animals, even ones you love dearly, are considered property. The cost for the loss of an animal is limited to the monetary value to replace the animal. So when you hear stories of people killing other people's dogs, for example, you have to know that what you can recover is generally limited to the cost to replace the dog, which I think people are sometimes surprised by. But in the case of a lot of these horse people, they were definitely aligned with this idea of animals as property, just like a car or a sofa or a beanie baby. They saw these horses as toys they could throw away with impunity. And that just sucks. Even today, many people in the United States, believe it or not, don't think it's a crime to kill an animal for any reason. And even if they know it's a crime, they think that any penalty they might incur will be small. And while there are law enforcement groups at both the state and federal levels that investigate and prosecute crimes against animals, in the late 1980s and even up until today, the horse world primarily relied on their own self-regulation to prevent mistreatment, which didn't work very well. For example, in the case of this particular fraud ring, the American Horse Shows Association, which is an organization governing the sport of show jumping, among others, only acted against the people involved in this murder ring after they were formally indicted. In the end, all these issues add up to a situation in which killing your horse was often a better deal than selling it, as long as you could get past the insurance adjusters. And it appeared that wasn't too hard. From an insurance versus history standpoint, insurance, surprisingly, won. It's not that the insurance industry changed, but thanks to a federal investigation into the death of a candy heiress and the con man who swindled her, this insurance fraud ring was discovered. The insurance companies did recover some, though not all, of the money that they had paid out. In the end, Helen Brock's body has never been found. She's a grave site in Ohio near her birthplace. The Helen V. Brock Foundation is still around, making grants to organizations that work to prevent cruelty to animals, among other things. Helen Brock's home is still in Glenview. It was sold a few years ago for several million dollars, but most of the locations of the activity in Chicago are now gone. And the stables where much of the fraudulent activity took place are parking lots near O'Hare Airport. Richard Bailey, the weenie, was sentenced to fraud, and the judge felt so strongly that Bailey was somehow responsible for Brock's disappearance, though they could not prove it, that he sentenced Bailey to 30 years. Amazingly, Bailey served his entire sentence and was released in 2019 at age 89. He wrote a book proclaiming his innocence and somehow is still alive. Jack Matlick, the man Frank Brock had hired to help maintain the house in Glenview and who may also have been involved in Brock's disappearance, was never charged. Authorities simply couldn't find enough solid evidence. 
He died in 2011, and whatever he knew about what had happened, he took to the grave. John Druck, the lawyer who taught Tommy Burns how to murder a horse, died of lung cancer in 1990, so he was never prosecuted. His daughter Lisa, who had hopes of being an Olympian on Henry the Hawk and had no real involvement with the fraud other than being a child of a real jerk, moved to New York City and became involved with author Jay McInerney, who immortalized her as a main character in one of his books. You'd think that would be the end of it, but then she moved to Hollywood, became an actor and then a producer, changed her name to Riel Hunter, and then had a scandalous affair with married presidential hopeful John Edwards, even having his child out of wedlock. Seriously, you cannot make this stuff up. George Lindemann Jr., the atrociously rich Olympic hopeful who hired Tommy Burns to murder his horse Charisma, was convicted of wire fraud and sentenced to 33 months in prison in addition to having to pay $750,000 in restitution. At first, he tried to get his sentence suspended while he appealed, and then he asked to be sentenced to a boot camp rather than prison. Ah, very rich. The judge was having no part of it. Lindemann served his time and then moved to Florida and pretended it never happened. He became an art collector and fancies himself a philanthropist. A few years ago, Architectural Digest did an article on his very fancy house, and if you want to see what a horse murderer does with a shit ton of money, there you go. Sometimes his past catches up to him, like when he wanted to donate a lot of money to the Democrats, specifically Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, and the Democrats turned him down. We know this because the email was one of the DNC emails dumped by WikiLeaks right before the 2016 election. If you want to have a good time, Google George Lindemann Jr. and see what pops up. Donna Brown, the woman who hired Tommy Burns to break the leg of her horse streetwise, was sentenced to seven months in prison, but only served about three. She said she had to take care of her seven-year-old daughter. It's good to know that she cared about something. Tommy Burns served 18 months in prison, a reduced sentence due to his cooperation with federal agents, and moved to Florida, where he is now a car salesman. He also changed his name to Tim Ray. Harlow Arley was sentenced to 18 months and served six. Equine insurance changed some, but not all, of their guidelines. Different options have been suggested by the industry and by people in the horse world to make equine insurance less prone to fraud, like requiring horse sales to be registered with the state. Many insurers still allow the horse owner to choose the veterinarian who does the initial health screening, as well as any autopsy, which is now required for a equine mortality claim. But some do not. Requiring an insurance company-approved veterinarian or pathologist probably would cut down on potential fraud claims. Some states like Michigan have actually passed laws making it a crime to kill or injure an animal with the intent to defraud an insurance company. Horse prices continue to vary with the market, apparently going up a lot during the pandemic, but mostly on lower-value horses. The tax laws have been amended over time, but they still don't allow you to write off your performance horse in the same way you did before the 1986 Tax Reform Act. And some people are still terrible. But as we become more aware of the issues surrounding animal cruelty, I'd like to think that more people would speak up. Thanks for listening. Show notes and a list of sources and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website, which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. 
Join me over on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to tell me your thoughts about the podcast episode or insurance history in general. I'd love to hear them. Make sure to use the hashtag insurancevshistory so I can find it. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording.